if you'd grab your Bible and turn with me to uh, Philippians chapter 4, we'll be uh, coming to the end of a series that we've been in the last number of weeks, learning what God has to say to us, primarily on the topic of joy. This morning I want to share with you a message, fighting for joy as we battle our thoughts. As we talk about our thoughts today, uh, you know, we, we've been looking at joy and what it means in our life and understanding that if we could only have joy when circumstances are good and right, then we wouldn't have joy most of the time. And we've talked about that and we've seen what it means to have the joy of the Lord in spite of circumstances. But I believe that sometimes what steals our joy, at least what Philippians chapter 4 suggests to us, that what steals our joy is not just circumstances, sometimes it's our thoughts. See, you could have all the perfect circumstances, but if your thoughts are not right, they can steal joy right out from underneath you. Have you ever played the game, maybe at a state fair or at a Chuck E. Cheese pizza or showbiz pizza called Whack-A-Mole? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Help me out. My fear this morning was that I would ask and no one would have heard of this. If you've heard of Whack-A-Mole, raise your hand real high. Be proud. Very good. You can be a Nazarene and play Whack-A-Mole, I think. I hope. You know, it's this game, and, and, and the, the little mole will pop up from one of these holes, and you have a rubber mallet or like a, a boxing glove mallet, and, and you smack it down, and then everyone you hit, you get points. But the challenge is, is they don't come up in any particular order, and they don't come up and then stay down. They just pop up all over the place. I think this can be a lot like our life with joy, especially in our thoughts. We have a mallet, the truth of God, that can squelch out these joy robbers of thoughts that pop up. And as long as we're on this side of eternity, as long as we live, no matter who you are, no matter how filled with the Holy Spirit you are, there will be attacks that come at your thought life. And it's just like playing whack-a-mole. As soon as one thing pops up, can you believe they thought that about you? You can smack it down with the truth of God, and over here will pop up something else. You no-good, rotten person, you smack that down. And I cannot believe this is happening to me again. And you smack that down over and over. It's like this extended game of whack-a-mole. I, one of the things I love about God's Word is it doesn't just tell us the problem. It doesn't just give us one side. It gives us the answer as well. Philippians will talk to us about the power that we have to keep knocking the battling thoughts away from our hearts. The joy in our thoughts is really where the battle is won or lost. A number of weeks ago, we talked about taking every thought, every feeling, every desire, and making it subject to the king of kings in our life. And that's our responsibility is to take every thought captive and, and make it stay at the feet of Jesus and let him speak truth into it today. Paul's going to go a little bit farther and talk to us about how we can do that. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1 through 8. As we look at this, we're going to see three primary enemies of joyful thinking. God gives a formula through Paul's words of, of how to experience joy in our thought life, but we've got to look at some of these enemies and see what it is we need to do to take care of them. First, I want you to think with me and look at the fact that we've got to learn to attack argumentative attitudes. We've got to attack argumentative attitudes. If I'm going to experience joy, if I'm going to have the joy of the Lord in my thought life, I have to come right out and attack these argumentative attitudes. We all have these, and it, it comes from personal conflict. It comes from 
uh, our desire to be seen a certain way or to be right or to be treated a certain way. And don't make a mistake, they are joy stealers. Have you ever stayed up late at night worrying about what that email really meant? Have you ever played that voice message over again to try to parse the tone of what they were saying to see what really was going on? Do you play back the tapes in your mind, a conversation that you may have had months ago or even years ago, hanging on to the evidence you have of how they treated you, how they spoke to you, what they said to you? Have you ever walked through that scenario in your mind of how they never said a word to you? Maybe you've never thought that. You need to ask the person next to you to pinch you because I'm wondering if you're human. The enemy wants to attack us and our thoughts, and these argumentative attitudes can creep in if we're not careful. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, look at it with me. I plead with Eodius and Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. I ask you, my loyal yoke fellow, to help these women to have who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. I plead with you, Eodius and Syntyche, to agree with each other. How can I attack those thoughts, those argumentative attitudes that come at me, the ones that result in stealing the joy out of my life? There's some things that Paul is suggesting that these people have committed to that helps attack these argumentative attitudes. And, and look at them with me. We have a commitment to live in harmony with the Lord. We've got to look at your commitment. What are you committed to? That can help resolve some of the relationship challenges. The NASB puts it that, would you please, I beg you to live in harmony with the Lord. I plead with you to agree with each other, the NIV says. There is a commitment we have to the Lord that can help attack these argumentative attitudes. If I'm going to attack these thoughts, I've got to decide who it is I'm going to listen to, who it is that's going to be in charge in my life. Ask them to agree with each other, to live in harmony with each other. I've got to commit to seek that common ground, not the battleground. In order to do this, we have to have this type of commitment that grows out of the way we value other people. That's what Paul is teaching here. Look at this with me. He says, I want you to help these women. And look at the value he places on them. He says, these women have shared, they have struggled, they have contended for the gospel, the cause of the gospel. He says, they are valuable women. Help them agree with each other. Help them have harmony with one another. These are valuable people. Have you noticed that when you begin to value somebody, the way you relate to them is a little bit different? Maybe you notice it if it's the converse of that. If, if you don't value somebody too much, it's pretty, pretty easy to get aggravated with them very quickly. But if you begin to see the value in them that God has, it challenges us to say, wait a minute, I'm committed to the same thing that they are committed to, and I am going to value who they are. Don't let one mistake that a person makes cause you to stop valuing them. Paul is challenging his church at that time to look for every way to have harmony with one another. 
But we need to take a lesson from the symphony. And we understand, and we've heard the illustration a number of times before, that there can be a beautiful melody that comes out in a symphony, and people aren't playing the same instrument. They're not even playing the same notes, but they have to be in the same key. They have to be following the same conductor, and he can bring about some beautiful music better than if everybody was playing the same thing the same way at the same time. Paul is saying, make sure you look at your commitment to Christ and you are having the same conductor, the same leader. You have the same common goal in the gospel. He says this about these two. Help them find unity in one another. The Lord says, I want you to plead with one another that you can find common ground. Next we find, as Paul is talking about compassion, he has compassion. He says, help these women. One of the things that breakdowns in an argumentative attitude is when we have the compassion of the Lord that drives us to want what's best for them, to help them come to the end of their conflict. And in the face of head-on conflict, it's our commitment to Christ, it's our compassion for one another that helps bring this out. We see here, he says, I ask you, loyal yoke fellow. We don't even know who this person is. Paul is speaking to this person. We don't know exactly who they are. And he says, loyal friend, one who's gone alongside them, would you please have compassion on them and your commitment to Christ as well? To see the gospel preached, this conflict wasn't something that was just secret anymore. It began to affect the whole church. It began to affect everything around them. I want to pause right here as we've been diving into the word. There is things that you think about that you think that nobody else will ever know. And it's true. I can't read your mind. I have no idea what you're thinking right now. Someone is thinking it's time for ham and green olive pizza. I'm sure. Well, that was me. That wasn't you. I don't know what you're thinking. I don't know your thoughts, but it's interesting. The things that you think that you allow to come in and and camp out in your mind, it will begin to affect you in a way that others will be able to see it all over you. And the, the battlefield that the enemy does in your mind, it can cause a rift, a argumentative attitude, and it could not just affect you and that person, it can affect your entire family. It can affect your entire office. It could affect your entire Sunday school class. It could affect your entire section in church. It could infect the entire church itself. Paul says, the joy of the Lord is what you need, church. And we need to make sure we're not letting the enemy get at us and steal our joy through our thoughts. Our commitment to Christ should cause us to want to fight these argumentative attitudes. Our compassion for one another should cause us to fight this argumentative attitude. And and our character. Let's read on in verse 4. If you are really going to help people... If you want to do what this book has been talking to us and telling us all along, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Now notice the text that is right here that fits into this, making relationships better, when he says, let your gentleness be evident to all people. Let your gentleness be evident to all people. The key character here is we need to have a character of gentleness. 
We are committed to Christ. We have the same calling in life. We have compassion that he's given to us. It should expel these argumentative attitudes. But when we have this character of gentleness that Paul's talking about, this should fight this thought. We also see this key character of gentleness can now show through in our words. It tells us a gentle answer turns away wrath. The key word here is evident. If you write in your Bibles, I would encourage you to underline the word evident. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all people. Some of us, were afraid to show our gentleness. Some of us are afraid to show that compassion and grace. And here he says, if you want to have your joy stand, you've got to deal with these thoughts that come at you, and you have to make sure you look at your relationships with others. Now, we're going somewhere. Hang with me. Some of you, you're trying. You're going, I'm trying to connect the dots, Pastor Brady, but you lost me. Hang on. Paul's getting somewhere. He didn't just write this for fun. He says, if you don't get a hold of this, everything else I've said to you will be undone by what's between your ears. And all the mental gymnastics that you let yourself go through, you will miss it. He says, the argumentative attitude has to go. But he didn't just leave it there and say how. He says, first, look at your commitment to Christ. Second, look at the compassion that God has put in your heart and look at the character of Christ that he's putting in you, a character of gentleness. It needs to be evident. And finally here, what's the key motivation? The key motivation is the Lord is near. Now, I think it's not only that Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. He's right around the corner. He's right there with you. He's right up next to you. I think we can also find a biblical case to say this is talking about the Lord's return. This is saying... Jesus is coming back. Whatever argument you've gotten yourself into, how important is it going to be in heaven? Jesus is coming back. How important is that argument going to be when you're standing before the throne and you are brought to your knees and worship before him? In fact, it's interesting to me that this argument, we're not even told what the argument is that these women are going through. How fitting is that for us? Here, thousands of years later, we are looking at this argument. We know it's brought division in the church. We know it's been stealing joy in their life. We don't even remember what it is about. We don't even know what it's about. There can be things in an argumentative attitude that will steal your joy. Have you ever tried to wrestle with an 8-year-old? I have an 8-year-old in my house, and I love to wrestle. And, and there's some exciting things when you wrestle with an 8-year-old. I, I'm pretty... Secure and confident that I can still take Caden anytime I want to. And I let her win when we wrestle most of the time. Those few times that I don't, she ends up crying, and so I have to let her win anyway. But, but I'm secure in the fact that, that I can take her, and there is some kind of security in the strength of knowing that I can still take this eight-year-old. I don't have to pin her shoulders down when we wrestle every time. I can let her win in the thumb war. I can let her win in the race around the house because I know there is a strength greater and it allows me to have a gentleness around her. This is the same verbiage, the same language that we see here. Jesus is coming back. The one who is in you is greater than the one in the world and we can have a gentleness with one another because of the strength that we have. I can't believe they would send an email like that and have that kind of tone with me. You know what? I, I can just rise above that. Maybe they meant that. Maybe they didn't mean that. Maybe that's what the voicemail was, was 
trying to say maybe it wasn't. Maybe they were ignoring me. Maybe they had a bad day and had a migraine themselves. I'm not sure what it is, but I can squelch that argumentative attitude by saying, Jesus, I'm committed to what you have called me to. I want to have compassion that you have put in my heart. And you know what? I also want to have the character of gentleness. I want it to be evident in me, and I can let it flourish around because I know that I have the almighty, powerful God living in me. I'm not done there, but we need to move on. We'll share on that later at another time. This is what Paul is saying. Christ is near. You're going to be with him for all of eternity. You've got the strength and power of the Lord with you. Let yourself be confident in your gentleness. Argumentative attitude will steal. Quickly, I want to look at two more. We also have these abusive, or excuse me, we need to abolish the anxiety. We're going to get to abusive uh, thoughts in a minute, but we need to abol- abolish anxiety. The Greek word here for worry gives us the idea of being pulled apart, pulled apart at the seams. The English word we have for anxiety or worry here, this English root word, gives us the idea of strangle. Do you feel that you are strangled? You're being pulled apart at the seams by the things that you worry about. Paul is going to talk about how joy, everything that he's been talking about, joy in all circumstances, your circumstances could be perfect, but if you don't get your thinking right, you will miss the strength of the Lord. Paul is one of those writers who gives us some of the most incredible insight on worry. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. For this to take place, you have to determine two things. One, determine that nothing is worthy of my anxiety. Nothing is worth you getting all worked up over and anxious over. It doesn't say, you know, you, you won't be anxious. It says it's not worthy of our anxiety. Even psychologists and, and uh, sociologists tell us that as people list all the things that they worry about, statistically, only about 8% of the things you worry about will ever even happen. So in a practical sense, this idea of worrying makes no sense at all. You can waste your life worrying about the what-ifs, and, and most of them won't happen. But what, what we see in here in Philippians, it's speaking not only to the things that would never happen, to the 8% that does happen. We have a God who can take care of us. I don't have to fret about it, and I can have the joy of the Lord and not let my anxiety and my worry take me over. But it's going to take work. Everything in this world throws out at you reasons to worry. You, you could have pretty good breath and pretty good toothpaste, but when you watch commercials, you feel like, well, I must be brushing my teeth with dirt. They tell me, I, I see pictures and all these things of, of Listerine tells me there's two or three layers of, of bacteria that gives bad breath. Maybe my crest mouthwash is not cutting it enough. Now I need to worry about bad breath. Now I need to worry about, about my, my motor breaking in my car. And, and if I don't have the right oil, I mean, I have oil in there, but if I don't have the perfect oil, then it won't last as long. And if it doesn't last as long, I can be stuck somewhere. And if I'm stuck somewhere, I could, I could starve to death. And you can begin to worry about everything. And this isn't a call to be irresponsible. This isn't to say that you shouldn't do the things you know you're supposed to, but our, our media culture tells you worry about everything. You can buy insurance for everything. I'm not speaking against insurance. But if I have to buy insurance for my insurance, that I have insurance, maybe I'm worried a little bit too much. I found the other day I can buy insurance for food. 
I can buy insurance and I'll always have food. Now, if you have that insurance, I'm not saying that's bad. I'm not saying you made a bad choice. You pray about it and God will give you direction. I'm just saying how much we let worry dictate and run our life with everything. Be wise, be responsible, yes, but worry will steal joy. This isn't in your notes, but I think it's here to help somebody. Worry is wasting today's time to clutter up tomorrow's opportunities with yesterday's trouble. Worry is wasting today's time cluttering up tomorrow's opportunity with yesterday's trouble. E. Stanley Jones said, to live by worry is to live against reality. You say, well, I think the things I'm worrying about is really my reality. The reality of God is bigger than the reality that you are looking at. Paul says, I want you to have joy. We also need to determine that everything is worthy of my prayer. And rapid fire, for sake of time this morning, I want you to just look at this continuum that's there in your notes. And I've noticed that as we grow in the Lord, our prayer should change at least. If our prayers aren't changing, maybe we're not growing. Before I knew Christ, I didn't pray about anything, and my worry took over everywhere. But as, as we begin as, as new Christians, we sometimes pray about the crisis that hits us. And when that job falls out, when we're in the ER and we have excruciating pain, there is that crisis and we can begin to pray about it. And that's good and that's not bad. But if you only pray when a crisis comes, worry will kill you. We can grow in the Lord and we can now begin to move and we can pray about some big decisions. Should I move there? Should I have that job? Should I go there? And, and it's good to pray about these things, but if that's all we pray about, worry will encompass the other areas of our life. As we keep growing, we start to pray about our immediate needs. So it's not just the crisis. It's not just the big decisions. It's the immediate needs. And we begin to realize that he is the provider and I will pray for him and he can provide for me. But something happens and this next one is a quantum leap. Praying for my immediate needs and then as I grow in the Lord, I begin to pray for the needs of others. It's no longer always about me and something happens to my worry. It takes a drastic dip on that graph because I'm seeing that it's not about my life alone. As I continue to grow, it's not just others' needs. I begin to pray about my plans. God, I don't want to just pray about what I need, what I'm in right now, but where do you want me to go? I want your will to happen. As we grow, we pray for God's purposes in ourselves and others. And finally, we pray about everything. Let me tell you why I think that's so important for us. It's not that... You shouldn't pray in a crisis. Of course you should. It's not that you shouldn't pray about a big decision. Of course you should. But until we begin to live and we say, God, I want to take every concern I have to you and lay it at your feet, worry will grip us. Somebody said, when we rely on our organization, we get what an organization can do. When we rely on our education, you only get what your education can do. When you rely on your eloquence, you will get what your eloquence can do. But when you rely on prayer, you get what God can do. Paul is saying you miss the joy thing because of what happens here in between your ears. It's argumentative attitude. We begin to find we have to stop the anxiety in this last one. We need to arrest abusive thoughts. Sometimes we 
don't call it what it is, we begin to abuse our mind and it begins to affect our soul. Paul says we have to arrest that negative thinking and we have to focus on the positive. Look at Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent, praise Lord. Think about these things. It's a long sentence. There's a lot of help there. And this morning, I, 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 I know you've got class to get to, but I, I would be amiss if I didn't uh, unpack this last part. There's freedom for somebody in this room today in this, in this area. We've talked about joy, you've heard about joy, but it is literally sapping the strength out of your soul, your thoughts. You allow your mind to be dictated by relationships and these, these argumentative attitudes. You, you enter into a room already half ticked off. You enter into that relationship. When you see that person, you're already having them at a negative point on the scale. And God says, stop that. You're not hurting them. You're hurting yourself. And you're blocking the joy I have for you. And don't worry about so much. But this last one, friends, I am convinced the enemy is running amok in our life. Many of us who would never dare move in willful disobedience, that's not what we want to do. But we let him have his way in this area. We begin to think about all the bad things. And here's what Paul says. Stop that. Well, that's kind of hard. Right now, I want you to do this. If there was a pink elephant in this room. Big, huge, wrinkly feet, pink elephant with a long trunk. I don't want you to think about that pink elephant. Now, don't think about that pink elephant. Whatever you do, don't picture in your mind or don't think about a wrinkly foot, long-trunked pink elephant. Don't do it. It's hard, almost impossible to win the battle that way. I don't want to think. Bad thoughts about that person who always does stupid things. I can't believe they did that. They said it again. They do it over and over again. We just begin to rehearse all the negative things in our mind. But when we displace it with what Paul is telling us here, the words of the Lord, think about what is true. Remember when we take every thought, every feeling, every desire, and make it subject to the king, and what does he do? He speaks truth to it. The truth is, why waste sleep over an email? Let them come talk to you. Why waste sleep over them inferring something? Why don't you talk to them? Why waste sleep over their opinion? It's just their opinion. They're entitled to it, but so is everyone else. This isn't a call to be irresponsible or irreverent or lack compassion. We've already talked about that. But we waste so much mental real estate and not allowing the joy of the Lord to be our strength. So it's not that we're grumpy Christians, though many of us can fit that category. We are weak, anemic Christians. Do you hear me, church? The reason this is so important is not just because you don't feel good and you don't have a buzz and you're on spiritual high. You are weak spiritually when you don't have the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is my strength. You feel worn out. You feel thin spiritually. You have doubt. You're lacking in faith. You need the strength of the Lord. You need the joy of the Lord to come in. How can I do it? I'm so glad you asked. This is my fifth conclusion, then I'll be through. That was a joke. You could laugh there. We think about what is true. God has truths. As I shared at the beginning of the service, we like to collect them, embroider them on plaques and pillows 
But do we ever let them loose to do what they're called to do? Think about what is true. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. He will never leave me or forsake me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He has given us truth. Think about the things that are noble. One definition of what is noble is that which lifts your eyes up. Here's how you can check your thought life. What you're thinking about, does it make you think about God? It may not be an evil thought in and of itself, but if it does not lift your mind to God, it's not helping you fight this battle of your thoughts. Let it lift your eyes. Think about what is noble. Think about what is right. This doesn't mean winning the argument. It means thinking about what a person has done right. How easy it is to fixate on what they have done wrong. That thing that is wrong, that boss, that neighbor, that family member. I mean, all I have to do is say, have they done something wrong? You can give me 15 things. What if I said, could you tell me 12 things they did right this month? Why do we waste so much time fixating on what someone has done wrong? Why don't we say, could you believe their attitude? Could you believe the way they served? Could you believe... If, if I had another hour, which I don't, I would stand here and talk to you about people I would see in this place and what they are doing right. Do you notice it? Do you see it? God wants to lift your heart by seeing what other people do right. What is pure? I don't know if there's any way around this. Some of our thoughts are just flat out filthy. I may never know what you're thinking, but the effects of an impure thought life wreak havoc on your spiritual strength. They block the joy of the Lord, and it will lead to so much pain. Allow God to give you purity of thought. What is lovely? When you see a baby take their first steps, and you can see the love it strikes in the eyes and the heart of that father or that mother. Do you direct your thoughts to things that are lovely? Or do you direct them to something else? Things that are admirable. The things that God would approve of. If Jesus was sitting next to you and he was, was reading your mind, which he can, but if you could see him right there looking at all your thoughts in your conversation, what would it be that you want to talk about, that you'd want to think about? Could you think on things that are admirable? He wants to help us, church. And finally, what is excellent and praiseworthy? It's kind of like verse 8 that says, think about such things. See, we are responsible for what we tune into. You and I will be bombarded for the rest of our life, just like radio waves. They'll be bombarded with signal after signal after signal after signal. Sometimes it will be a radio wave of selfishness. Other times, kindness. Sometimes, lust. Sometimes love, sometimes joy, sometimes depression. All these signals are coming at us, but you and I are responsible for what we dial into. Am I going to choose to focus in on the lustful thought, the depressing thought, or am I going to say, God, though my feelings don't feel it, I'm going to make them subject to you, and I'm going to dial in on your truth. Speak truth to my thought life. And then... We've got to see here, we have to practice that truth. The things you've learned and seen in me, practice these things. That's what Paul's doing. He's giving a model to them. In order to put these truths into practice, we need a model. 
final thought, when you focus on these positive practices, the truth, you begin to live with a sense of God's presence in your life will be evident. 